0: Today actually, is we're going to teach a little bit about baptism. Um, it's because next week we're going to be having a baptism, so make sure that you guys know that what we're going to do next week for the service is rather than coming here for church, we're actually just going to have church at the beach. So we're going to uh, show up, you know, around eleven o'clock. If you want to be baptized, we we're asking you to show up around ten thirty, and we'll kind of give you guys some of the logistics and specifics as to how we're going to go about it. Um, but for the rest of you, just show up at around, you know, we're going to actually start the at 11. So don't show up at 11 because that means you get there at 11 And uh, so get there like around quarter till. It's Memorial Day weekend. Think, things tend to get pretty busy there at the beach. Um, the past few years we've done this so that they have some sort of a festival that goes on. Parking does get a little bit slim at around 11. So my suggestion would be to get there at around 10.45, thereabouts. Make sure that you can get some decent parking and, uh, you know, bring your lawn chairs, bring whatever it is that you need. We just encourage people to come, bring lunch, and hang out. You know, have church. Uh, we'll have, you know, some worship, and then we'll have the baptism immediately following, and then we'll all go down to the water, which will basically be right there. We'll baptize people. So I know sometimes it can be a little bit tough to get little kids. Bring them. Just let them have fun. But bring a shovel for them and will satisfy them while we have Bible study and church and all that. It'll be a great time. So we hope to see you guys back there. But one thing that needs you guys to be able to do for me is uh, you know, no matter how much we try to let people know that we're not going to be here next Sunday, somebody will end up showing up here wondering how come, you know, everybody got raptured except them. And. Uh, so just make sure, if you wouldn't mind, let people know. You know, we, we put it on our website. We kind of send information out. We try to tell all you guys weeks ahead of time and do as much as we can to let people know about this. But inevitably, somebody gets get the memo, and somebody ends up showing, up showing up. So if you wouldn't mind, just tell as many people as you know. Have them come on out. Um, and out of curiosity, right now, how many of you have never been baptized? And you're actually kind of thinking about maybe being baptized. You're thinking about it. Yeah. It's awesome. Good. You're good. I'm really happy to see that. Uh, my hope is that by the end of today, uh, a lot more of you will be convinced uh, of the need to be baptized. So, what I wanted to do today is we're going to actually teach about baptism. Uh, I think in all my history of being a pastor here, I really don't think of any time in which I've actually devoted uh, Sunday morning or a period of time in which we could just actually look at this. So, for that, I apologize. I think it's important for the first pastor to do that. I haven't done that faithfully, so I'm trying to backtrack a little bit here and make some things running. So we're going to be looking at baptism today. And uh, normally what we do on Sunday mornings, we take books in the Bible and we study through them. So what we'll do today, as I mentioned, we'll look at baptism. Next week we will have a baptism. And then following week, we're going to actually start a brand new series kind of leading on into the summer, going all the way to sort of the beginning of the fall. We'll be starting a series going through the summer on the mountain. So i encourage you guys to show up for that. It's going to be great. In fact, what we're going to be doing this summer as we go through the Sermon on the is going to be a little bit different than what we've normally done before as going through the circ ser- uh, uh series. What we'll be doing this summer is uh, we'll be, we've got four full-time pastors at this church, and then we'll actually be having all of the pastors kind of take the Sermon on the We'll sort of collaboratively be teaching through the Sermon on the I'll teach two weeks, one of the pastors will teach, I'll teach two weeks, another pastor. We'll make our way through the entire book. So, if you typically don't like me, you're a little And uh, so, it should be a really good time. I'm excited about it. it um, the Sermon on the Mount is really just an amazing book. It's a series or a sermon which Jesus teaches and really gets to the heart and the core of the message that Jesus communicates to his disciples and really in the broader sense to all those who would follow him. So with that, what I want to do right now is we're going to give you a I want to read a couple of verses, and then uh, we'll we'll take a look at this. but today is going to be a little bit different, as I mentioned. It's be more of a teaching, be more of a teaching, whereas uh, Sunday morning sometimes could typically be more along the lines of preaching, proclaiming. Uh today will be a little bit more of along the lines of teaching. So, a little bit towards the end, I'll shout at you and I'll yell at you a little bit, just so that you feel like you got your money's worth. But for right now, what I want you to do is to turn it in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Because so I want to read two verses first before we jump in. And, uh, and then we'll say a few things about baptism, then we'll finish up with some worship and uh, and uh, wait our God like that. So, uh, Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 37. So kind of put your finger at Acts chapter 2, verse 37, and then go back to Matthew 28. If you guys don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you, we do have Bibles in the back, grab one. If you perpetually don't bring a Bible, we're going to have some time at the end to repent. And, uh, you know, it's just good to bring a Bible. I mean, you come to church, bring a Bible. You know, it's good. You show up at a baseball game, bring your mitt. You never know, you might catch a ball. So bring your Bible if you don't have one. We have them back there. We got some ushers if they want, you know, they can maybe get you one. But um, Matthew 28, we're going to start off with this particular passage. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to jump on real quickly to Acts chapter two. We'll read that little passage, then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work with the large, uh, the larger subject matter of baptism, with to So Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 says this: Jesus came and he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus makes this declaration, tells his disciples, he says, here's what I want you to do. This is typically called the Great Commission. He tells his disciples, go to all the world and make disciples. Communicate to them, preach to them. Give them the good message and the good news that I've come, I've forgiven sin, I've washed away transgressions, I'm restoring fellowship between uh, sinful man and holy God. Let people know about this. And as you do, and as they respond, what I want them to do is I want you to baptize them. So Jesus gives this specific detail, baptize them. Now jump forward, if you would, real quick quick to the passage in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter two, verse thirty-seven says this. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. In fact, this is exactly fifty days after Jesus. Uh, a little bit less than fifty days, I should say. Jesus is uh, Jesus makes his proclamation to his disciples. Now, several weeks later, Peter's up preaching. He's communicating. This happens to be on the day of what's called Pentecost. The Holy spirit has descended. There's a lot of miraculous signs and wonders and things of that nature that are actually happening here. There's a lot of people that have questions. They're asking Peter what's happened. And uh, then Peter turns to the crowd, and he says, here's what's happened. He communicates to them. Their response to Peter's proclamation of the message is in verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So here's the question of the hour. What are we supposed to do? He preached to us about Jesus. He told us about the gospel. He told us about what's happened. What do you want us to do? What's the response that's legitimate, that's good, that's appropriate? And here's Peter's response. Verse today. And then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Everyone. Jump Jumping down to verse 40, it says, and with many words. And he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received the word, they were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, basically, what this little message in Acts tells us is that every single person that heard, or not just simply heard in their ears, but actually received it, meaning they were impacted by it. They were touched by it. They accepted it. They were moved by it. You know, there's a difference, obviously, between just gathering a bunch of information. Sitting in a lecture and listening to the professor, you're taking notes. There's a difference between just simply cognitively taking in information and actually receiving information to where it brings about transformation. Some of us, we go to church, it's just mere information. How do you know? How do you know if you're just one of those people that take in information? It's pretty simple. Your life never changes. Your life never changes. You hear the Bible taught. You hear it talk about repenting from sin. You never do. You hear the message spoken. You never change. Your desires never are altered. Your heart never becomes in love with God. It's a pretty good indicator of the fact that you have just simply heard the message, but have never really received the message. In the Acts passage, those who received the message were baptized. They repented from sin, and they were baptized. So, what I want to say before we jump in is this, is what happens in baptism is we're going to see that this is communicated by Jesus as a means of what the church is to do, and we see this beginning to be practiced in the book of Acts, and it's taught about throughout all of the other epistles that Paul and Peter also write. So, this concept of baptism, Jesus gives, it's practiced by the early church in the book of Acts, it's taught about Therefore, today, the church is to honor them, is to accept them. Uh, the, we typically call this a sacrament, meaning that this is something that Jesus initiates. If you're trying to figure out how many sacraments are there, technically, in the Bible, there's only two, one of which is baptism, the second of which is, does anybody know? Communion, both of which Jesus gives as commandments. He says, do these things. And when you do them, you'll be showing forth, you'll be demonstrating something of the grace of God uh, that has come down upon you, and that is ultimately being shed beyond you into the lives of other people. So therefore, do these things in remembrance of me. Every time you do a baptism, it is speaking forth a story. So that's what we're going to basically be looking at. We'll be asking a series of questions and trying to understand the significance and the importance of baptism. So I'm going to pray. And then we'll get to work at this largest larger subject of baptism, what it's all about. Father, so right now we just ask you that you would help us. We need your strength, we need your wisdom, we need your eyes to be able to see these things in the Bible. We don't want to be like people that just cognitively receive information. God, we pray that we wouldn't just simply have information, but that we would actually have revelation. And that revelation would be known by transformation. Our lives would be changed. We would be different people. We would view things differently. Maybe the way that we walked into this room would look differently than the way that we walked out of this room, the way that we thought about you before we came into this room. After hearing the message, we would think differently about you the way than we thought when we first walked into this room. God, we ask you that today would not just simply be an exercise in our brain. But that it would be about transformation of our heart uh, upon hearing the Word of God and being moved by the Spirit and being brought into this relationship that you, God, our Father, is to have with us. So we give you this time and we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first question I basically want to ask as we sort of jump into this is really just the simple question what is baptism? I'm, I'm more or less looking at the larger concept of what does the word baptism mean? Now you know it's important to note in the world in which we live, it seems as if everybody has a definition for any type of word they want, and that's what Wikipedia is all about, right? Part of the concept is like everybody can make their own definition, whatever it is to you is what it is to you. That's fine. It might not mean something else to me. All well, that's great, except for when you're signing documents that like are legal and have to do with buying a house. You know I mean? There's not a lot of like, post-modernism that goes into those type of documents. But the idea of being able to just make up what we want, the way we want, how we feel it, in terms of just kind of thinking about stuff, doesn't fit when we read the Bible. So what I want to say by that is when we read the Bible, there's certain terms that appear. It's not okay for us just to just simply take those terms and make up whatever we want about those terms. It's not okay. What we need to do is we need to basically ask the larger question, well, what did the word mean when it was originally written? How did it appear in not only the Bible, but also within the larger context of that culture? So uh, words that you find in your Bible were also words that were used within the culture. So they had similar type of meaning. So we can read a word uh, from a book 2,000 years ago, and it might change its meaning. Give you an example. Uh, terrible. Right. You know, I, I, I like reading Puritans, and every once in a while Puritans will talk about and the Lord God is terrible. I'm like, is not he's not terrible, he's good, you know. And the idea of terrible used to mean like inspiring awe, right? He's terrible, mighty, full of awe, or awful. Right? But, like when we say the word awful, it doesn't mean like full of goodness means horrible, right? Anyways, you guys get the idea. What I want to point out in terms of this is the idea of baptism did have meaning in the first century context. So the word actual baptism comes from the, there's two Greek words in the Bible that, the word, uh, that are translated baptized or immersed or whatever. The first is bapto, and then the more specific, the more general one that's, or that's used, I should say, more regularly is what baptizes it it's sort of the, it, it taken it from the word bathtub and it's uh, sort of um, emphasized. It literally means to immerse. It was a word that was used in the first century for, let's say, if you were a textile specialist. Uh, oftentimes what you would do if you, somebody, you know, part of your job was to make clothing or textiles that like clean and bright and brilliant, white, and nice. So what you would do is you would get these soiled, filthy, dirty textiles that, you know, come off of sheep, let's say. The sheep are dirty. It's like, got to make this thing look nice. So what you do is you put it into a solution that's sort of like bleach. And you, in first century language, would baptizo the textile. You would immerse it into this bleach, into this solution, and uh, you would pull it out, and it would be made clean. And that was the idea of baptizo. And so it's important to note that, you know, when you read in your Bible the concept of baptism, that's typically the Greek word that's used there. It means to immerse or to be enveloped by or surrounded by. That's kind of the concept or the ideas that are being conveyed there. But you can see sort of this is the way in which the word's translated, like the Baptist and uh, John the Baptist or baptized or baptized, 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 baptizes, so many of Yeah. Um, So what I want to say with regard to that is the idea, that's the concept that's conveyed. Um, There are also baptisms in the New Testament that are not specifically with water, although water is sort of the main literal concept implied. Uh, There's also a metaphorical concept of baptism. For example, uh, John the Baptist talks about Jesus will come with a baptism of fire. Right. You have these ideas of baptism of fire. Now, what does that mean? It means great sort, great hardship, great difficulty, right? That's the idea that's being conveyed. You're enveloped in these flames, and these flames might be difficult and hard and triumphant, and stuff, and, you know, you're having a hard time through them. And so we use the phrase or the idiom, "I'm baptized of fire I'm going through a really hard time. Well, the New Testament would use this concept of baptism in terms of the literal sense of being baptized into God. Jesus says, "Go all the world, make disciples, baptize them into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's doing is he's basically giving them sort of a ceremony that's going to be taking place for future generations, but it's a ceremony that's meant to Signifies something greater, larger, or deeper, or weightier. It's this idea that what happens in salvation, in other words, when God moves into our hearts and we receive the free gift that God offers to us, literally what happens sort of in the spiritual sense, your life is basically enveloped in God. You become part of God. You become baptized into God. You're not God. But God sort of envelops you. He surrounds you. So this idea uh, that's carried throughout the rest of the Bible, that God is your Father. Jesus, you are going to be baptized in the Father. So now, as a Christian, you have a Father. God is your Father. Jesus, baptized into Jesus. He's the Savior. He saves us from our sin. He carries our penalty on the cross. But also baptized into or submerged or immersed into the Spirit, where by now the Spirit is our worker, and he also is our teacher. So that's the picture. So that's what's happening here. Jesus says, when somebody who's outside of covenant relationship with God is brought into covenant relationship with God, it's as if he is being immersed in God. I want you to feel that. If you're a Christian here today, and you're looking at your life, you're like life's hard, it's tough, I don't know what I'm doing, there's a lot of difficulties, I want you to just stop and I want you to think for a very brief moment that your life, that's very brief, is literally wound up or found in or enveloped by God. Just think about it. Because you might look at your life and think, I'm in the middle of hardship. You might be in the middle of hardship, but you are also in the middle of that God has enveloped you in a baptism where he has brought you into himself. So, not just are you in the middle of difficulty alone, but you are in the middle of a difficulty with God, with you, in the middle of difficulty. And that's the beauty of salvation. God is your Father. Jesus is your savior. The Spirit is your teacher. It's this amazing relationship that Jesus says. Go and pronounce to those who have received me, that they are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's the concept. That's the idea of what baptism is. Now, what is sort of the history of baptism? Now, one thing that's important to know is that baptism is not exclusively a New Testament prophet. It's important to know that sometimes we read our Bible more like, ah, oh, baptism came about because Christianity came about. That's not true. Sure. baptism was around three days Jesus. It predates the church. It was an action that had happened, and so when you see, uh, for example, guys like the Baptist, we'll look at a moment here, when he begins to do baptisms of the wilderness, what John is actually doing is he's sort of augmenting a practice that was already in play in the first century, and he's sort of breathing new life into this ancient practice. But it's important to know what the practice was all about. So, in order to do that, what's important to note is that, Basically, God, this nation, that God called unto himself, called the Jews. the Jewish people, God called unto himself. In fact, in the Old Testament, God describes his nation as being a holy nation. Uh, The actual Hebrew word for nation is go, or goy, G-O-Y, and uh, nation, or nations, plural, is goyim. Uh, And the word for holy is kodesh. Goyim, kodesh, is really the name of the Jewish people. It literally means holy nation, or set apart nation, set apart body of people. And what happened is throughout the ages of uh, Jewish history, what happened was they were, they were surrounded by other nations that weren't close. They didn't love God, they didn't worship God, they worshipped false gods. They were paganistic, paganistic they uh, uh, offered sacrifices of babies and uh, they were just basically people that did not want to have God as the center of the life. They were polytheistic, and God should separate yourself from the nations. So what you have, basically, is this concept or the idea of nation taking on a negative connotation. Originally, it was positive connotation. Goyim, Kodesh, uh, Holy Nation, Jewish, people. And then the concept of nation became sort of negative, meaning the pagan worshipers. been so false God idolaters. Does that make sense? So what happens is by the time you get the first century, you have the Jews, which are these people that supposedly are following God, they're in covenant relationship with God, they love God, and then you have everybody else, the Goyim. The nations. They've got Jews, covenant relationship with God, and you've got everybody else. And you have sort of this, this, this division between Jewish people and nations or Goyin. However, periodically there were non Jewish people. That saw the Jewish people thought, I oh, like the way that you guys live. There's something unique about you guys. There's something different about you. I want to have it. So let's say you're a Jewish person, or let's say you're a Gentile person, you next to a Jewish person. You see something different in your life. You see the way they raise their family. You see the way that they take care of grandma and grandpa and treat their animals. And this is just a unique way in which they live. They're living according to the Torah. And like, you know what? My life's pretty messed up. I'm tired of work be 18 gods. None of which really seem to do anything for me. I'm spending a lot of money down at the, uh know, at the temples. Everybody's ripping me off. My gods don't seem to be working too hot. Their gods seem to be taking really good care of them. And you're like, how I want to become part of that covenant relationship. So you go next door, and you're like, hey, how did I become a Jew? It's I going it to take you to go meet my rabbi. You can go down to the rabbi. And what would happen is they would have a process. And the process would basically be to walk you through the steps of uh, sort of converting from being the goi, Koy, goyim, one of the goyim, one of them, into the covenant relationship with God, a Jew. You're following so far? That's very unconvincing, but I'll take your word out of it, both of you. And so what happens is you have this idea where the Jews would then help non-believers of these Gentiles to convert into Judaism. So this is the process that they would take. The first step, what they would do, is they would circumcise them. The actual Hebrew word for Tuhila, Milah, it was a process of circumcision. I want you to think about this, okay? It is a really, don't think too hard about it, but it's just... Be quietly about it. But just I want I want you to think about this. Okay, here you are, and you're like, oh, I want to become Jewish. You go to your buddy next door, he's like, yeah, come see my rabbi. Rabbi's like, okay, you want to become Jewish? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, here's what do I gotta do? Here's what you gotta do. Drop your pants off start in the night. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm like, gonna circumcise you. That's what we do. We circumcise goyim to bring them into the covenant relationship with God. That's what Circumcision is. Uh, and, and the whole point behind this is this was the means by which uh, the nations were to be identified as God's chosen, covenantal people with Circumcision. So here's here's what I want you to see about this. There was an ancient rabbi that said this. He gives a little bit of an insight as to how they do Circumcision by the name of Hillel. says this. Uh, to those that were going to be converted. He says, He who separates himself from the foreskin is like one who separates himself from the grave. I mean, they took this seriously. They, they looked at this idea that if you were uncircumcised, you're in death. If you're circumcised, you transfer from death into life through the action of circumcision. So the first step is circumcision. All right. Second step would be uh, immersion or mikvah. Nip- uh, Is the actual Hebrew word. You can go through the process of immersion. This is significant because this is beginning to shape this larger context for baptism. What you would do is you would, uh, all around the Temple Mount, they would have these sort of baths. They actually just uncovered them several years ago. There were these all sorts of large, sort of like big jacuzzi. And uh, I didn't have jets, but you know, what they were, when you went to go worship God at the temple, you would go into this mikvah, and the way they would do this, they would have sort of a step that would go down. So imagine, like up here, from this spot to like right about here, and, and there's a big wall like it, all right, big wall. So I can't see on this other side. So if I walk down, my step, or descending into the mikvah, it's filled with water. By the time I get to the bottom, my tefillin would closed, so I'm pretty much naked, all right. So what would happen is I would, it would, it would be dark down, relaxed, and so you would literally walk around the wall would kind of jet out about here in the water. As all your clothes are taken off, you would walk around the wall, but if you would come back up, you would be handed a new garment, and the signification is this, is that you would become clean. You would wash yourself, but as you went down, you would take off your old garments, your old clothing, and you would go into the waters as a means of being cleansed, and you would turn around the corner, and you would take literally 180 degree turn. We've this you repent, Your past behind you, your mask, you cleanse, you come out, you're wearing brand new clothing, signifying a new person, and oftentimes part of this whole ceremony they would give you a brand name, to change your name, sort of a, a baptized or a mikvah or immersed type of a name where you are a new person, you got a new life, a new uh, a future ahead of you in which God is now your king, okay, that was the idea. And then the last thing that you oftentimes would find is uh, the sacrifice is called Corbin, where you would basically bring a sacrifice to the priest, he would offer it, and then he'd sit down and kind of have a little bit of a barbecue meal. You'd literally sit down with the priest, he'd barbecue the meat, he'd eat a little bit of it, he'd eat a little bit of it, and you're, you're, you're inducted. You're, you're, you're a convert now, you're a proselyte. This was the idea, this was the, this was the pattern of what would happen for not a Jew to become a Jew. Okay, fast forward a little bit into the ministry of God by the name of John the Baptist. You're probably familiar with the story, but I want to make sure that you understand what's happening here. There's a guy by the name of John the Baptist. He's often asked to be the cousin of Jesus. He has this ministry. What he does is he goes out into the wilderness. He happens to be the son of a Levi. It's really important to know this because his dad literally was sort of an on-staff, you know, paid priest for Judaism. And oftentimes his son would follow in that same, you know, in the same footsteps of his dad. But not John. But sort of John. I mean, not in the same way of the institutionalized, like, you're going know, to become a priest, you am going to bring, you know, the incense into the temple. What John does is he basically separates himself to some degree and he goes out to the wilderness. And he does sort of his own mikvah. It's really unique with John. He goes outside of traditional Jerusalem, and he goes out into the wilderness, and he gathers together a huge group of people. And John literally is out there and he yells at him. He says, I like, it up. Just yell at people all the time. All day. And what happens is this, this radical revival takes place. People actually respond. But what's unique about this is it's predominantly Jews. Jews, and you got it? You got to feel this. Jews are already part of the covenant relationship with God. They've already been circumcised. And here's what John does He's like, listen, you guys have to repent. Like, repent from what? And like, if you own a business and you're skimming up the top and you're treating your employees bad stuff. If you got a neighbor, and you got three jackets, and he's got none, stop living like that and start giving yourself away. Love your neighbor. That was the message of John. Do what God does. Live like God. Stop living like the rest of the... Go again. That's what He Be baptized. Can't be bad. If you're a good gym, you're doing, you beginning to follow the ritual that's specifically for on Jews. I don't feel this, okay? What this means is that for you to say i circumcised, but maybe I'm not really a Jew, it's huge. But that's what the of worry about some of you. Some of you guys come and you don't know Jesus. I mean, honestly, some of you come to church, you don't know why you come to church. Some of you come because maybe mom and dad have been nagging you. Like, go to church. Like, I don't want to go to church. Come to church. You're going to go to, uh, fine, I'll go to church. And you just go to church. But right? maybe you're here because your wife just will not stop nagging you. Good for the woman. But right, pop Here's the reality. Here's the reality. You have to come to grips with the fact that just because you are an American or have a Bible or were born and your mom and dad were Christians and you were born in a church or because you got married in a church or because you voted Republican, whatever, I don't even know what the types of things that you associate and say, you know, I I, I think I'm a Christian because I like country music, all right? It doesn't cut it, all right? look at it and say, I think I'm a Christian because of this, but it really boils down to the ultimate aspect is do you love God? Do you love God? Do you know the grace that God has given to you? Have you received it? Have you recognized it irregardless of your background? you sin? Have you? Have you repented from sin? Because some of you from the church and you do sort of religious activity, but there's never any change. You don't change. And that's what concerns me most for some of you. Because you hear the message. You go to churches, and you hear the same message. you got friends around you that are saying, stop doing that. Don't live like that. Trust God. And you're just like, I'm fucking. And you're really not fucking. I mean, the line is just God wants to bring you into life, guys. Okay? This is not about dumping points off your scorecard and one of these days he's just going to scorch you. This is really about here and now God saying, I want to give you life. But you're living in death. You're choosing things that lead to death. That's what John's message was. despite hundreds, maybe thousands. We're basically taking this time saying, we act just like the Gentiles. In flesh, in our children's we're Jews, but in our actions, in our hearts, we're just like the Gentiles. We're just like those other nations that don't know God. We're just like everybody else that has this plurality of deities. We don't really truly, in the actions, in the activity, and as part of our hearts, really don't know and love this God. So, therefore, we will step down into the midvine, into the Jordan in this case, be baptized, and come forth again. That, that was John the Baptist. The last thing is, just, Jesus comes to John one day. This is this blowing your mind. If Jesus comes to John and says, like, I'm going to be baptized. And you can your shit for that? the same way you probably are like, What? Why did Jesus to be baptized? If that's the significance of what baptism was all about, I'm if it was really this idea of identifying yourself with a sinful nation of people that have sinned against God, who corrupted themselves, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Well, that was a trick question I don't, You don't need to be baptized. Jesus' like, I've got to be baptized. No, so no, you need to be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. Jesus is like, nope, you've got to baptize me. And Jesus says this little statement. He says, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. So this is what I think Jesus did. I, even though I'm the Son of Man, the Son of God, have never been. The purpose for which I've come is to identify with sinful nations, made up sinful people. I will be with them in the fires, in the grave, in the dead. And I will do that as a journey from heaven to earth to seek and save those who are lost. I will go to the grave to find those who have abandoned the creature to save we have come for the purpose to identify with sinful man. You guys, this is precisely why we love Jesus the way we do. And I want you to say this is because God is so good and so loving, He steps from His kingdom into our world, identifies with us as sinful people, though He never sins, for the distinct purpose. Rescuing us from the grave, how? By going to the grave himself. But the nails begin to take taking some. And some of you here are recipients of it. Some of you know what it means to be snapped from death. Because they love. love Jesus. That's what happens. Okay. The next question I want to ask is this: What really is the purpose of baptism? Oh, I'm going to jump this real quickly. Throughout the Bible, if you have noticed this yet, pick up on these themes, that God has this tendency to speak a lot in terms of pictures, right? God uses, like, um, if God were a director of a movie, it'd be like, God's really into making sure that the set looks excellent, right? Maybe it's like, God's like a director. He's like, listen, I want to remember that particular scene, time, and time and time again. So I'm going to put flashbacks from that scene after throughout the movie. Right? That's the kind of the, the picture, the idea. I'll give you some examples of this. Uh, for instance, um, when God called Abraham, we looked at this a little bit. When God called Abraham, he says, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to circumcise yourself. Right? This is crazy. Because Abraham's an old man now, and Abraham's like, God, how do I have a relationship with you? God's like, Abraham, grab that knife over there on the table, and I'll tell you how to be made right with me. i like, go, okay, God. You know, it's like, you know, thank you, God, right now for Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Some of you are like, how do I become a Christian? You're like, I'll tell you. You know, <laughs> you know that's not how we do things anymore, and that's amazing. I'm happy for that. But that's the way it was for Abraham. God says, Abraham, circumcise yourself. And when you're done, circumcise your boys. Circumcise the service. Circumcise everybody under the roof of your house that would be a part of the covenant relationship with me. That's what happens. And for future generations, circumcise and have your sons circumcise their sons forever. So to this day, Jews, eighth day, child born, is circumcised. Now, think it this one. No comment. Think of it this way. If you, let's say you're 12 years old and your mom has a baby in a Jewish family, and eighth day your mom pulls her, you know, takes your kid, takes your new, brother's, new, takes your new brother down to the rabbi, not only with your daughter, but takes your brother down to the rabbi, whatever, and then the rabbi takes out a knife and he begins to perform this action of circumcision. And you're a 12-year-old kid, you're a little bit, you know, aware of things, moment where the father now answers the son with an inquiring sibling and siblings. Here's what happened. Many, 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 many moons mm-hmm. ago our great, 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 great father Abraham was brought into covenant relation with God and he circumcised himself and then therefore circumcised every other son subsequently from him. To this day, we circumcise every child as in part of his covenant. See what happened? It's a teaching through a graphic image. <laughs> give me another example. Um, when the children of Israel were in Egypt, they came out of Egypt, and one of the events that God had them do was to take a lamb, to kill it, to put the blood on the doorpost on the sides of the house, and uh, God says uh, he basically is instituted sort of a ceremony that was to happen every single year on the same day, every single year, and it was called the Feast of Passover. And the whole intention behind this was that when you sit down around the meal and you are eating bread, but this time the bread's flat bread, all right? If you're used to a family and bread's like a staple of life, you're used to like these nice big warm, you know, fluffy loaves of bread and butter or whatever, whatever, you know, and then that particular night out of the year, mom brings out of the oven and it's like flat, it's all sick looking, and you're like, "Why do we be eating like flat bread today? What's up with this, mom? What's up with this, Dad? Dad's like, oh, I'm glad you asked because I want to tell you the story. He tells you tell us this story, the story of how God redeemed the people of Israel. And on that particular night, they were in hurry to get out of Egypt. They didn't have time to leaven their bread. Therefore, they just ate unleavened bread. That's why we eat unleavened bread. That's why we eat the, the things that we do this particular night, is a way to remind us of God's great grace. Working and moving in our lives, and we're recipients of that. So that's what this night's about. It becomes a teaching moment. Every single year, good Jews keep the Passover as a purposeful reminder of what God had done for them. This the Passover. But we do the same thing as Christians. We celebrate communion as a sign to remind us that when we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we remember. In this graphic picture, in this form of a symbol, of a scene, it's like a Snapchat. The it's, it's, it's The purpose is to take our minds back to a scene two thousand years ago, where Jesus hung on a cross for your sin, bled for your sin. And we eat the bread, we drink the cup. Remember, Jesus died for me. Every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, that's what baptism does. It reminds us of what God has done. Here's some examples. Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six says this, verse one just turn there real quick. I'll read a couple of these. It says, What shall we say that shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we die died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ will also baptized into his death? And we were buried, therefore, with him in baptism of the dead, in order that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so that we might walk in newness of life. So here's what Paul is doing. There's people in the Roman church that are asking these questions. Now that I'm a Christian, and i be forgiven of all, all my sins, can I live any way that I want and do sinful things? Is that wrong? After all, God forgives, right? Paul's like, you don't get it. You just don't get it. You don't understand what's happening. You went into the water. You went into the grave. Something happened whereby you spiritually died, but you didn't think it because part of the Units of life. Part of the miracle of resurrection is God brings you from death through a 180 degree turn to life, whereby you're a brand new creation. So Paul's saying, if you think that you can continue to live as a new creation, whereby your actions and your life are perpetually sinful, or acting just like the rest of the Gentile nations, like you, you don't get it. You can't live like that. I mean, we will periodically sin. It's not what he's saying, but he's saying that something has changed when we rise out of the grave and into the newness of life. We're new people with a new heart, with new desires, with a new family, with a new relationship with God. We are new creations. It's exactly the New Testament phrase. All of this arises out of this larger context of we have been baptized into this relationship with God records into a brand new life. that's what happens when you're a Christian. Here's another one. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. I just want to read this one and wrap things up here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6 says this. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope, but you're called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in, in you all. So here's what Paul says. He says there's just one baptism. Whereby God has saved you, has changed you. It's baptism. So, in a sense, what I what I think, you know, if I understand the concept properly, um, we are literally saved. All right, I'll just refrain from any quick judgment on this or that. We are literally saved through baptism. Not water baptism, but Jesus baptism. We are baptized into the Father, our Savior, Jesus, and the Spirit. We are baptized into it. That's what happens in the miracle of life. That means if you're a Christian here today, I want you to get this to somehow stand back from your earthly circumstances, the difficult position, and I want you just to feel the benefits of salvation. That what God has done, whereas at one time you were not a part of this covenant relationship with God, you were a sinner. You're part of one of them. Go in. You're outside of fellowship, outside of relationship with God. In fact, the Bible says that you are actually a child of wrath. But what happened is that God in grace and love and mercy and his kindness reached down to you, sought after you, went after you all the way to the grave, wraps his arms around you and brings you into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what salvation is. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't have bought it. All you had to do was receive it. That's salvation. All of us have gone astray. We've walked away from God. We've avoided God because we have felt soiled. We have felt defiled. We have felt sinful. And we don't want to have anything to do with God. So therefore, what's the solution for mankind? Big leaves. Everybody tries to sew together their own fig leaves to avoid God at all costs. When the heart of God is to say, I will go after those who have sinned and rebelled and offended. And I will go to them all the way to the grave to save you. That's how much God loves you. It's an amazing story. And that's what God does in bringing you from death into life. So check this down father. He's his father. Some of us, that's a hard word to swallow because some of us have had really poor examples of earthly fathers. I encourage you, if that's you, read your Bible a lot. Read your Bible a lot. What you'll find is that God's actually an amazing father. But we have Jesus who's our Savior. We don't deserve to be saved. We've done everything to offend God, but God we have the Holy Spirit who fills us with His strength, but He's also our teacher. He teaches us about God. And you're looking at your life, you're like, my life's hard. I want you to feel what God has done for you today. That's what baptism signifies. So here's what happens. It really is this idea of demonstrating in a very visual sense what God has done. So we go under the water as a means of portraying, demonstrating what God has done for us in self That's what Jesus says: Go and be baptized. Make disciples. Baptize. That's what all throughout the book of Acts to see what happens when somebody responds to God. They get baptized. Okay? I want to finish with this very last question and really just kind of be straight up and just sort of, well, ask: why is it that people are not baptized? Why do people not get baptized? All uh, right? First answer, I think, is just ignorance. There's a lot of people that just don't know, They haven't learned about it, They haven't heard about it. They didn't have a pastor yelling enough to get baptized. I don't know. Um, I hope to fulfill that role and just take care of that vacancy right now and yell at you until you get baptized. And love of, of course, because I want you to be a part of that blessing. Listen, I do want you to be baptized. But, you know, ignorance is one of the big reasons. People just don't know about it. They're not aware of it. Um, the second reason, I think, is pride. I think a lot of times people are just like, at times everybody's been staring at me. That's pretty weird. My faith is a little bit of a private deal. If you look at it as if my faith is just simply a private deal, <laughs> you, I think those are subtle, quiet cover ups for pride. Really do. Basically, the quiet cover ups that just say, I don't want to be bold, I'm embarrassed what God's done for me. I don't want people to know about this. Really, I'm afraid of what people will think about me if they see me take a public stance for God. It's really self, or centered upon self, pride at the root. Let me give you an example. When I was uh, around 19 years old, I became a Christian when I was around almost 16 years old. And what had happened was uh, I got involved in a really great Bible study, really great church. I grew. I uh, Shortly after, about a year and a half, two years later, I got involved in teaching a Bible study. I had never been baptized. I had gone to a high school retreat. High school camp. I was actually a uh, counselor at that particular time. I was out of high school. We were in this swimming pool, and the pastor was like, okay, anybody want to be baptized? And I'm thinking, i to be baptized. This is horrible. I was brought Catholic, so I was baptized as a baby, and I knew. Oh, no, man. I I'm not sure if that's legit or not, because I didn't believe in Jesus. It's hard to believe when you're like eight days old. And, uh, you know, and like, but I remember sitting there on the edge of the pool. My feet were in the water. and just thinking, you know, if I go forward now and let people know I'm going to be baptized, then i have been teaching teach in the Bible study. People might be thinking, you know, I don't want all my pastors to think, this dude's been teaching in the Bible study. He's never baptized. That's horrible. You know, I just thinking I can't do that. I'll let him down. Maybe I'll get fired from my job. I don't have any work. It, but this is this idea. Like I was embarrassed. It was really my pride. And I remember this, this inner struggle. It just says I got to do it. And I just got off the you know little thing. I was sitting there. And I just jumped in. Like new wrapped up. It was the most amazing day. I still remember it. It was just this sort of breaking free. From this sort of weird sense of like, I don't, I don't want people to think weird thoughts about me, you know. And I just did it. Uh, the third reason I think is apathy. This is horrible. It's kind of where people just like, just don't care. Say, like, ah, no big deal. Why be baptized? You know, no big deal. is that part of like the whole institutionalized church thing? Actually, it's not. It's part of the Bible thing, all right. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's, it's not the Bible talks about. Jesus gives it. He says, just do it. Don't be apathetic. Don't look for reasons or excuses. Don't let apathy be the reason for your disobedience. And the final reason, I think, is just people are not believers. They're just not Christians. So the other reason why I think many people are not baptized is they just have not come to know Jesus as their Savior and been washed in His blood. All right? So you're here today and you are a believer and you've never been baptized, I would urge you, be baptized you're here today, maybe you're like, I was baptized when I was really young, but you're not a believer. I would urge you, don't rely upon an activity that you did. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Christ and be saved. Turn from your sin and be baptized. We're going to do it next week. Alright? Next week we're all going to be down to the beach. I want to say one last thing about this. Please, 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 don't look at this as an opportunity. Be like, sweet, I'll bail on church next week. It's at the beach. Like, I know what it's like. Sometimes, you know, it's like we live in the Central Coast. We're used to certain things. We come into a, you know, an auditorium here. It's like church is at an auditorium. You know, it's like, gosh, I don't got to go to the beach. I got to pack in chairs. I got to put on suntan lotion. You know, I got to sit in the sun. I know, guys, life is tough on the Central Coast. It's hard being a Christian here. I understand. I totally understand it's tough. Okay? It's really tough to be a Christian in San Luis. But what I want to say is this is that baptism is one of the most amazing things that happens in the church. It's really the celebration of watching people that have gone from death to life, who've gone from being soiled, stained, to becoming clean, being folded, being immersed. In the living God and us watching them, celebrating with them as they take that plunge as a very public way of pronouncing God's goodness. So that's what I want to show up next week at our baptism. I'm going to finish up here right now. I hope that was informative for you guys and, and good and that's just information. Dave's going to come on up and he's going to lead us in a few songs of worship and then uh, we'll dismiss...